Hello and welcome to this edition of The Neural Farm. My name is Colby Burns. I'm joined with Christopher Tony, co-host. Both of us are doctors of pharmacy. There's over 4 million podcasts in the United States, but we're certainly glad you're choosing to listen to this one. I hope we can provide some information education on this evening around the field of alternative mental health therapies with the goal of providing education and inspiring hope for those who are looking for alternative treatments for their mental health needs. We want to lead off the discussion with some current events uh, in the field of pharmacy. It's not related to psychedelics or mental health per se, but this is an interesting article and situation came up this week that the FDA declared phenylephrine and over-the-counter decongestants essentially as useless and is leading to potential withdrawal from the market. Uh, what do you think about that, Chris? Yeah, so I mean... When I got out of pharmacy school, uh, all cough and cold congestion products uh, primarily had Sudafed in them, and um, it seems like since they were, you know, regulated and you can only buy so much behind the counter at a pharmacy, um, you started to see uh, phenylephrine going into the over-the-counter decongestants in place of pseudoephedrine. Um, but there was never any good data that actually showed that phenylephrine had uh, any any good efficacy for treating uh, sinus congestion. So I would always recommend people get Sudafed uh, regardless, you know, of the purchasing requirements because it was the better product. Um, but it seems like the FDA has finally kind of made their decision that looking at the data. Um, that it has no efficacy in treating, you know, sinus issues. So uh, I think this was a good move and I'm hoping that uh, it allows people to get medications that are effective over the counter. Um, and it's kind of odd to me that people can be purchasing things over the counter to treat things that they haven't been proved to be effective for. Yes, I agree. I've, I've often, for years been telling people that phenylephrine doesn't work. And I've heard that from so many other people that phenylephrine doesn't work. Uh, but it's actually surprising to me the FDA now decided to do something when this has been an right. issue for years. Yeah. <laughs> um, Pseudofedrin has to be purchased from behind the counter due to its ability to um, be a precursor to methamphetamine. You have to show ID and only limited to a certain amount per month to purchase. But it is more effective um, than phenylephrine ever was in decongestants. So soon, I guess, phenylephrine might no longer be available. Which is the other, thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the other article I want to talk about, I'm going to post in the links and the references, but this is one that was actually from January, but it just came to my attention recently. Um, lion's mane mushrooms or heresine arenasis. Uh, if you recall, discussed with George Selhorn on Flourish Labs, and he is a doctor in plants, um, luckily biology, and he talked about lion's mane or aranaceae a lot. There is evidence to show now that this particular chemicals isolated from the lion's mane can enhance peripheral nerve generation and spatial memory um, in a recent study that came up in Journal of Neurochemistry. So I'm starting to grow lion's mane. Um, I'm interested in the potential for lion's mane. We can maybe talk about lion's mane or reishi or functional mushrooms. And in future episodes, there's a lot of new information coming out about those products. But I will post links in the references to that article if those are interested. But 
Today, we're going to talk about ketamine. And uh, ketamine is an old drug, but is developing more recent interest for treat-resistant depression. So I'm going to turn over to Chris to talk about pharmacology, side effects, and interactions with ketamine. Yeah, so we're going to jump right into the pharmacology of ketamine. Uh, ketamine is a medication um, that has been used primarily for anesthesia and pain relief, um, but it's also used off-label for the treatment of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. It works by blocking certain receptors in the brain and spinal cord, which can lead to a dissociative state. Specifically, ketamine is a non-competitive N-methyl-D-aspartate or NMDA receptor antagonist that blocks glutamate. Ketamine also interacts with muscarinic receptors, opioid receptors, and voltage-sensitive calcium channels in the brain, spinal cord, and descending monominergic pain pathway. Uh, unlike some of the other general anesthetic agents, ketamine does not interact with the gamma aminobutyric acid or GABA receptors. Um, so that makes it unique and also it does not interact with serotonin. Um, so ketamine's uh, mechanism of action is complex as, as you can tell, um, but it's not yet fully understood. Um, it's, it is believed that uh, its antidepressant effects are due to its ability to increase the production of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, and activate the mammalian target of rapamycin involved in the M4 pathway. Ketamine is complex and it does seem like you read different articles and it tells you different information on how ketamine works. Uh, from the literature, it does seem clear that we don't exactly know how it works for depression. Um, maybe not even clear how it works for other indications either, but it has an affinity for multiple receptors. The NMDA receptor, as Chris mentioned, uh, antagonism of this receptor is believed to be responsible for its effects on depression. Um, there was actually another NMDA antagonist that was approved by the FDA recently called Avelity, which is a combination of dextromethorphan and bupropion. Dextromethorphan is the active component in Robitussin DM, but it seems in this case that it acts as the antidepressant, where bupropion, which is a prescription antidepressant, mainly limits the metabolism of dextromethorphan to allow more to reach the central nervous system. Other NMDA receptor antagonists like memantine, though, have not shown benefit for major depression. So again, it's not clear by that argument that NMDA antagonism actually is what causes the antidepressant effects of ketamine. We'd also know that ketamine is an opioid receptor. Um, it's an agonist of both the kappa and the mu receptors. The mu opioid receptor is the more classical opioid receptor that's associated with pain relief. And this is where oxycodone, hydrocodone, and morphine bind. The kappa opioid receptor has analgesic properties, but also has hallucinogenic or disassociative properties. So this probably explains the hallucinogenic effects of ketamine. Um, salvinorin or salvia also binds the kappa receptor, which is another hallucinogen. 
Uh, it's believed the active metabolite of ketamine, known as hydroxynorketamine or HNK, is more selective for the mu receptor than ketamine itself. Um, the AMPA receptor is another one that's involved in ketamine activity and glutamate neurotransmission. Um, studies in mice showed that the 2R, 6R HNK metabolites, so there's two chiral centers in that molecule, um, this activates the AMPA receptor, but the 2S, 6S does not. Uh, mice who received the 2S, 6S HNK product performed better on the learned helplessness test and forced swim tests than their colleagues. Um, just a little note on learned helplessness. Basically, this is kind of a measure of resilience in animal species, like um, animals that essentially give up under significant stress are you know kind of said to develop learned helplessness because they don't want to display the effort to go forward and complete a maze um so failing that test is you know what they look for is a sign of depression that the animal's not doing anything and they'd also the swim test of saying that if the rat is depressed then it might not fight for its life for survival in a tank of water so these things are kind of morbid but this is honestly you know, animal research, how some of it is done in practice. Uh, all these theories of how ketamine works for depression revolve around it enhancing neuroplasticity and strengthening excitatory synapses through increasing glutamate signaling. So we know glutamate plays a role in it. It's the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, but again, still don't quite know exactly how it works. All right. So I'm going to jump into some dosing and administration with ketamine. Uh, as we mentioned, ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic with dissociative effects that occur within 45 minutes to one hour, and the total effects last about two hours uh, if administered as a single infusion. Uh, most common regimen studied for major depression is to provide 0.5 mg per kg based on body weight given as an IV infusion over 40 minutes. Ketamine is unique among what we have seen with almost all therapeutics in that its antidepressive benefits can occur in a short period of time, uh, such as an hour. Uh, ketamine can be administered in several ways, including uh, intravenous or IV drip, intramuscular injection, oral lozenge or troche, and nasal spray. Uh, the dosage of ketamine depends on the route of administration and the desired clinical effect. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, IV and IM administration here, um, but I'm going to give you a disclaimer uh, at the end as well, and I'll tell you why. So for IV administration, uh, ketamine is administered as a low-dose IV drip with a dosage calculated based on body weight. The initial dose of ketamine administered intravenously may range from 1 mg per kg to 4.5 mg per kilogram. The average amount required to produce 5 to 10 minutes of surgical anesthesia within 30 seconds following injection is a dose of 2 mg per kilogram. Administer ketamine slowly over a period of 60 minutes, I'm sorry, 60 seconds to avoid respiratory depression and enhanced vasopressor response. For intramuscular administration, the initial dose of ketamine uh, administered intramuscularly may range from 
six and a half to 13 milligram per kilogram. Uh, a dose of nine to 13 milligram per kilogram usually produces surgical anesthesia within three to four minutes following injection. Uh, with the anesthetic effect usually lasting uh, 12 to 25 minutes. Um, so they are, you know, shorter acting. Um, the thing with ketamine hydrochloride injection uh, is it should be administered by or under the direct care of a physician uh, or clinician that's experienced in the administration of general anesthetics. Um, they have to make sure uh, that you have a patent airway, meaning that you're breathing uh, as you should be. Uh, they have to look at oxygen. They have to provide oxygenation and ventilation uh, as well. Uh, they have to continuous, continuously monitor vital signs in patients receiving uh, ketamine injection. And emergency airway equipment must always be immediately available wherever that is occurring. But I do want to emphasize that, you know, the doses that are used for depression are uh, different than these doses. Uh, this appears to be, you know, the anesthetic doses that I'm discussing. Okay, what is the difference between R-ketamine and S-ketamine? So ketamine is composed of two enantiomers, R-ketamine and S-ketamine. The two enantiomers have the same atoms in similar locations, but their orientation differs so that they are mere images of each other. S-ketamine has greater analgesic and anesthetic effects uh, compared to R-ketamine, and it's less likely to cause psychotomimetic uh, and other adverse effects. S-ketamine is more selective for the NMDA receptor uh, than ketamine itself, uh, and it was found to be more effective at a dose of 0.2 milligram per kilogram relative to racemic ketamine, which seems to have a minimum effective dose for depression of 0.5 milligram per kilogram. Um, Janssen Pharmaceuticals has uh, patented a filtered version of ketamine called Spravato, uh, which is S-ketamine nasal spray. So after spending millions of dollars on studies and clinical trials demonstrating the efficacy of their new formulation, Janssen was able to secure FDA approval for the drug on March 5th, 2019. So Spravato is a medication um, used for the treatment of depression in adults who have not responded to other treatments. Um, it's composed of esketamine hydrochloride and is administered as a nasal spray. According to Spravato's official website, the dose of Spravato for the treatment of depressive symptoms in adults with major depressive disorder with acute suicidal ideation or behavior is 84 milligrams twice per week. The initial dosing frequency and strengths are flexible and they should be individualized to the lowest frequency required to maintain remission or response. The first dose typically lies somewhere around 56 milligrams or four sprays and will stay that way until a doctor determines if it is a good idea to increase it. Uh, when a dosage is increased, it is usually raised to 84 milligrams.
uh, and Spravato uh, only comes in a, a 56 milligram uh, box or an 84 milligram box. So there's only two choices. Um, Spravato must be administered under the direct supervision of a healthcare provider. And it's only available under a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy program, or also known as a RIMS program. Uh, because of the risk it causes uh, with sedation and disassociation, both the prescriber's office and the pharmacy must be enrolled in the RIMS program. A patient uh, treatment session consists of nasal administration of Spravato uh, and post-administration observation under medical supervision for two hours uh, after they receive the dose. Uh, blood pressure should be uh, assessed before and after treatment and patients should avoid food for at least two hours before administration and avoid drinking liquids um, at least 30 minutes prior to administration. Yeah, Spravato, you know, I've, we had it in the clinic where I used to work and it doesn't particularly, in my opinion, seem like it's been widely adopted. At least we never dispensed a prescription for Spravato um, from the clinic. And the reason I heard was a limitation factor was the two hour monitoring requirements, as well as the pre-authorization. Many insurers don't want to cover it without pre-authorization claims and sometimes those get rejected. And then the REMS program, you know, presents additional barrier of extra paperwork that both the pharmacy and the prescriber's office has to fill out. Um, you know, in general, it's far more expensive than the generic alternative, which we'll talk about, you know, using ketamine in a little bit. Uh, but again, being this a branded medication, it does cost more to get the actual drug. One advantage, you know, I can see is that it's a nasal spray, so it can be given in five minutes versus an IV um, administration has to be over 40 minutes. So that is quite a significant advantage there in ease of administration, but it does have those barriers of being more expensive and a little bit um, harder to obtain. The other question I had is about Spravato. Uh, Chris, why does it have staggered dosing? When they did the studies with uh, Spravato, uh, they had uh, participants uh, using the 56 milligram dose, uh, and they were their goal was to titrate up to 84 milligrams um, after the first uh, four weeks of, of receiving the 56 milligram dose. But you know it does talk a lot about um, how dosing is very patient specific, um, and it seems prudent that most doctors would you know start out at a lower dose. Um, you know, because this is a still a strong, you know, powerful mind altering medication. So, you know, some people may not tolerate the 80, 84 milligram dose as well as they may tolerate the 56 or it could be the opposite for a different patient. Um, so I think that uh, the staggering with the dosing is most likely just to uh, make sure the patient can uh, experience the lower dose before going up to a higher dose, uh, which the higher dose may be more effective for them. And so it seems like there is kind of this uh, titration effect that they're trying to create when they you know, start someone out at a low dose and then gradually work up to a higher dose. Um, let's talk about a, little bit, a little bit about side effects. 
So common side effects um, with for ketamine include drowsiness, double vision, confusion as to time, place, or person, loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting, dizziness when getting up suddenly from a lying or sitting position, and a dreamlike state. Uh, other side effects of ketamine may not be so common, um, but they may include flushing or redness of the skin, difficulty swallowing, and the urge to urinate more frequently. And then uh, with drug interactions, I kind of want to just briefly mention that um, you know, ketamine is metabolized by the liver and it's excreted by the kidneys. Um, so, you know, a person will need to have a healthy liver and healthy kidneys for this medication to be uh, processed by the body uh, correctly. And so, you know, it can interact with other medications that are metabolized by the liver or they can affect the central nervous system. Uh, according to, you know, one of the most popular drug compendiums online, drugs.com, uh, there were over 400 different drugs uh, that can interact with ketamine on their own. And then of those, 204 interactions were considered major interactions, and about a little over, a little less than 200 were considered moderate interactions. Uh, the most common interactions that we would expect to occur is with the CNS depressant medications. Uh, such as benzodiazepines, alcohol, barbiturates, and muscle relaxers um, in combination with ketamine. The stimulants like Adderall, it may raise blood pressure with ketamine or S-ketamine, and that can be an issue because uh, Spravato does raise uh, blood pressure. So all these meds should be uh, avoided at least eight hours prior to administering ketamine uh, in the clinic. And it's important to consult uh, your healthcare provider before taking any uh, ketamine uh, if you're currently taking other medications. So I wanna emphasize uh, as we move to talk about ketamine, the American Psychiatric Association currently recommends ketamine only for treatment resistant depression or after trying multiple other agents. but before electroconvulsive therapy, which is kind of the refractory um, option for treatment-resistant depression, sort of the last line recommended recommendations. Um, likely, ketamine is kind of put lower down on the table due to its potential safety concerns and the risk of dependency. VA guidelines for major depressive disorder agree with the APA and make ketamine an adjunct therapy for tr treatment-resistant depression only Although the first trials of ketamine for depression actually go back about 20 years, uh, it does still feel like we're kind of treating this as a newer therapeutic option. Um, the success of ketamine actually was the key to unlocking or expanding research around the potential for other disassociative agents for depression, such as psilocybin and DMT. So ketamine has been around for a while, and we know it's been beneficial for a while, but there's still, you know trying to optimize how best to put it in therapy and how best to administer it to patients. Uh, one note I want to talk about treatment-resistant depression before getting into the rest of the research. There's really very few treatment options currently available for treatment-resistant depression. Uh, we already talked about on the show that about 50% of patients obtain remission of depression from current treatment modalities. 
um, SSRIs, which are first line for depression, are effective in about 40 to 60% of patients, according to the STAR-D trial. So the rate of people with treatment-resistant depression is really high. Basically, treatment-resistant depression, it just means you failed one or more therapies for depression. Um, and it's thought that rates of depression um, remission are even lower for patients with bipolar depression. So bipolar uh, type two depression tends to be the more dominant mood state that people experience in that condition. So there isn't a lot of good data out there to suggest options for bipolar two depression. Um, when it comes to actual FDA approvals for treatment resistant depression, the only products that have been approved are aripiprazole, ketiapine, olanzapine, and fluoxetine a combination drug called Symbiax, or you can just take the generic version of both of those together, and Brexapiprazole or Exulti. Um, only Clozapine and Lithium have shown benefit in reducing acute suicidality in patients with depression. So there's not a lot of options. And that's why there's a lot of excitement for both S-ketamine and ketamine itself, for both treatment-resistant depression and for patients with acute suicidal ideation. Some economic stats I want to present to on depression. It is ranked third worldwide in terms of years lived with disability behind only lower back pain and migraine headaches. And the economic burden of major depression has uh, nearly doubled in the last 15 years, going from $173 billion in 2005 to $326 billion in 2020. Probably has only got up since 2022 because... <laughs> Measuring something right when we were starting COVID, I'm sure post-COVID it's even higher. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. As we mentioned, ketamine is generally given a dose of 0.5 milligram per kilogram IV over 40 minutes. Positive benefits from ketamine persist usually for 3 to 14 days after a single infusion, with peak effects occurring within 24 hours administration, and a smaller benefit seen after 7 days. After 14 days, statistical significance appears to no longer be achieved with ketamine therapy versus placebo. Um, individual placebo-controlled trials also show a high rate of relapse or depression within two weeks of administration. So it does seem that you know two weeks is a golden window. Um, and there's also three distinct phases of response to ketamine. There's an immediate response period of one to two days, a rapid response period of with the first week, and then a slow response period of more than one week. And again, the largest effect size is observed within that first 24 hours. Um, but benefits are seen within hours you know, of administration. It's one of the only things that seems to have that rapid benefit for relieving depression. The one unanswered question is when to repeat administration of ketamine. So talking about single use administration, having a point where it's no longer effective in a lot of patients after, you know, two weeks of time, um, how often should it be repeated then? And this is something that's still not settled in the science. Um, one meta-analysis investigated the effects of single and serial or repeated infusions of IV ketamine on depressive symptoms. Four trials were included and found that administering serial infusions, most commonly prescribed as six IV infusions given over 12 to 14 days, was associated with a larger reduction in depressive symptoms compared to single ketamine infusions alone, um, which uses a control treatment in this case, with statistically significant reductions in depressive symptoms noted at 12 to 14 days. 
and two other individual controlled trials, patients with treatment-resistant depression received IV ketamine infusions three times a week or up to six treatments at a dose of 0.5 milligram per kilogram, and they reported response rates of 71 to 89% after the first infusion, which was um, generally higher than that's seen in other um, studies that have been done in single infusion rates. However, relapse rates are really high in this trial with mean or median times of relapse of 18, 19 days, although there were some outlier patients who remained depression-free for longer. Uh, Colby, I had a question for you. Um, do you think that uh, dissociation is necessary for ketamine to be effective uh, in treating depression? It is a good question because, you know, again, we're still trying to figure out what the mechanism of action is for ketamine and how do we, you know, tell it's going to be effective, like what types of symptoms do the patient need to experience when on ketamine to predict a better response or more prolonged response to treatment. It uh, doesn't seem for one thing that either changes in manic or psychotic symptoms, nor changes in systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, or pulse at 40 minutes after infusion has been associated with greater efficacy with ketamine. Uh, disassociative symptoms as measured by the clinician administered disassociative state scale or CADIS, on the other hand, have been associated in some studies with improvement at both 230 minutes and seven days post-infusion. Uh, although this explains only a small fraction in the variance of the antidepressant response to ketamine. Another meta-analysis on this issue have actually showed that the association only occurred in three out of the eight studies reviewed. So disassociation might not be necessary based on that data. Um, we also have a study where patients were randomized to either 0.5 mg per kg or 1 mg per kg of ketamine or midazolam. Patients on the higher dose ketamine of 1 mg per kg had a greater state of disassociation that they experienced as measured on the CADSS scale, but this did not lead to greater acute benefit for depression which was similar between the 0.5 mg per kg and 1 mg per kg dosing. So again, disassociation doesn't necessarily seem to be linked to the depression effects, um, but that just shows that we still don't quite know what or how ketamine is working. Uh, Chris mentioned yeah. there's also, yeah, there's also research into IM or subcutaneous administration of ketamine for depression. We know it can be given that way for other indications. But if we could do that for depression, it would certainly be a more convenient form of administration than IV. There is also oral ketamine, which is available in troches that generally come in 150 milligrams per dose. Uh, this is different from the IV dosing because only about 25% of oral ketamine is absorbed. And it is a little scary. This is sold direct to consumer. I believe you can even find pharmacies selling it online that you don't even need a prescription for. Uh, I would strongly advise against people trying ketamine at home without first trying it in the clinic. For one thing, you know, it is an anesthetic. If you take too much of it, you can enter what's called the K-hole, which is basically sort of a anesthesia-like state where you might have issues with speaking or moving your limbs or performing basic functions of uh, your life functions. So that can be dangerous, you know, especially if there's no one around at home to look out for you or give care to you. So I would not recommend trying it at home without trying the clinic first, but just wanted to say it is available in oral formulation and not very regulated in that market. 
Lastly, the VA and DOD clinical practice guideline for the assessment and management of patients at risk for suicide suggests offering ketamine infusion as an adjunctive treatment for short-term reduction in suicidal ideation in patients with the presence of suicidal ideation and a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. The recommendation was based on studies of patients with severe depression, uh, a mean score of 33.8 on the MATTERS scale, um, and it showed ketamine infusion of a single dose of 0.5 milligram per kilogram provided a 10-point greater reduction in symptoms compared to the control groups 24 hours after treatment with a moderate effect size that extended out to six weeks. Um, additionally, esketamine or Spravato actually did receive that second FDA indication for the management of depressive symptoms in patients with major depressive disorder with acute suicidal ideation and behavior. Um, however, Spravato's effectiveness in preventing suicide or reducing suicidal ideation or behavior has not closely been established. So ketamine, again, is potential for ketamine or esketamine for acute suicidality, um, but still more research we're looking at when it comes to that front. But there aren't many treatment options for it. So that is a very interesting potential benefit of this therapy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it seems like, you know, every, uh, like you were saying, um, you know, taking oral ketamine online, uh, every other, you know, route of administration has to be done uh, at an actual clinic where you can be monitored. So, you know, I just kind of want to reaffirm that, you know, that it shouldn't be done at home. It should be done uh, under the care of a clinician. Yes, of course. Um, you know, it being an anesthetic, the potential anesthetic, it's used for anesthesia, does carry those significant side effects and should be done with caution. But again, very good potential benefit for depression, and there's certainly more studies need to be done to figure out the ideal regimen. Next week, we'll start talking about DMT, ayahuasca, MEO-DMT. This is a drug we've already mentioned before in the podcast, but certainly there's a lot of celebrities now endorsing the use of DMT, and we'll dive into the literature and determine you know safety and efficacy and how best to administer it and be aware of what the side effects could be and what you might experience while on this medication. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, lastly, as a disclaimer, this podcast presented for educational informational purposes only. As licensed pharmacists, we do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision, nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under the Drug Enforcement Administration guidelines, nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to individual after the use of federally illicit substances. One last point after the disclaimer, I don't think we mentioned ketamine is a schedule three drug. It's actually not a schedule one or two drug. So that does make it a little bit easier to administer in clinic that it isn't as tightly regulated by the DEA, which could be again, why oral ketamine has flooded the market now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody. Feel free to like and share, subscribe, and leave a comment below with any questions. This podcast is presented for educational and informational purposes only. As licensed pharmacists, we do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision, nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under Drug Enforcement Administration guidance, nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to the individual after the use of federally illicit substances. Music